0: I've got a question for you. Why do people leave church? Because hmm? of the people? Mm-hmm. That's true. Unfortunately. say so It's no longer relevant. Some people say they're bored. Peer pressure. Did you read my slides before it went up? Peer pressure. Occasionally, what about this one? Boyfriend or girlfriend, depending on who you are or what your orientation is. General distractions, disagreements. It could even be money. Pursuing money. Um, And that blinds you spiritually and just kind of changes your priorities in life. And here's another one that you sometimes hear. Politics. Just tired of the politics. Just can't deal with it. These are just some of the reasons. There's, There's many more and sometimes it's a combination of them as to why people may leave church. This evening our presentation is entitled Lessons from 1888. Now, maybe you know what that date means, maybe you don't know what that date means, but it, it, it's, uh, you know, we hear these dates in Adventism, we have these certain dates that we'll hear in church or at a prophecy seminar, A.D. 31, what's that date significant for? When Jesus was crucified, right? 457 B.C., what's that significant for? That's the start of the, the 2300 days and also the 490 prophecy. 17, no, 538. What's that one significant for? That's the start of the 1,260-day or year prophecy. 1798, if you can add it very quick, is the end of that prophecy. Okay? 1844, what's that significant for? That's the close of the 2,300-day the prophecy. And... 1863. What's that date significant for? It's not a prophetic date, by the way. It's just a historical date. The Adventist church was legally incorporated on May the 21st, 1863, which is why Lineage Season 2 is launching on May the 21st. Amen. And no one will know why we're doing it (laughs) on May the 21st. Anyway, and what about this date? 1888. What happened in 1888? What was the official event? The official event was a general conference session. Happened in 1888. I forget which number, I think it was the, I forget which number of general conference sessions it was. But in 1888, a general conference session happened. Now, what is a general conference session to those of you that don't know what a general conference session is? It's essentially what we would call a business meeting for the World Church. So at the General Conference session, you have a business meeting. At the same time, it's an election process. So they had this big meeting in 1888. Well, it wasn't that big. Today, if you have a GC session, if you've been to General Conference, the last one was in San Antonio, Texas. If you went there, there are approximately 2,500 delegates. Then you just have everyone else who's there to see the show as well. And you can have up to 60,000 people on Sabbath. But the actual delegates who need to be there is about 2,500. In 1888, the number of delegates at the General Conference session, I think it was only around the 100 mark. That's how many delegates we had. Now, it's... A, it's The the, the name 1888, you hear it in Adventism. Maybe you know what happened then, maybe you don't. But I believe there are lessons from that that event. And we're not going to look at the theological side of things because that's a whole minefield that we don't have any time to get into. I'm going to look at something else this evening that I believe is relevant in many ways to us as Seventh-day Adventists, even as young people in church today. In 1888, you had a general conference session, and there was a huge disagreement. There was a huge disagreement. People left church after 1888. We lost some good men. Have you heard of the name D. N. Canright? No. Some of you have. He's the man who came up. You know, yesterday we talked about Joseph Bates studying the Sabbath and so on. D. M. Canright is the man who came up with the Bible study. That led to us as a church adopting the tithing system. It was D.M. Canwright. Ten years after 1888, he left church. Though. Couldn't put all these politics and arguments and, and whatever. We lost a good man. A.T. Jones was one of the characters in 1888. Let me introduce you to him. He was born in 1850, so he would be kind of regarded as a second generation of pioneers. He was born after the Great Disappointment, etc. He stood before Congress in 1881 at the age of 31. At 31 years old, he was sent as a representative of our church. You know, you see on the news, you know, Donald Trump sitting there in Congress. He was sent to that building. And there, as a representative of our church, he stood on the floor quizzed by the senators of the United States of America for 90 minutes straight. He was quizzed on the subject of the separation of church and state, and he argued that America should not pass a Sunday law in 1881. Very, very intelligent man. And he was the editor of Signs of the Times. Another character in 1888 was E.J. Wagoner. Now, he was even younger. He was born in 1855. He was the editor of the Science of the Times along with A.T. Jones. There were these two men. Then there was also G.I. Butler. G.I. Butler was born in 1834. He was baptized, interestingly, by J.N. Andrews. And I believe it's always a sad part of history that we don't know what would have happened if J.N. Andrews was there. He died three years before 1888. He was the general conference president from 72 to 74 and 80 to 81 and Florida conference president later on in his life. So at the time, he was the residing general conference president. And then you also had Uriah Smith, who was born in 1832. He lost his faith after 1844, the Great Disappointment, and he left church, so to speak, for about eight years. In 1852, he was reconverted, joined the church, and was the longest-serving editor of the Adventist Review, also serving as the General Conference Secretary and Treasurer. These are four of the principal characters in 1888, and their ages at the time, if you didn't add it up, are 56, 54, 35, and 38. Now, sometimes 1888 has been pitted as a battle or an argument between the younger generation, the younger men, Jones and Wagoner, and the older men. Butler and Smith. Yes and no. 38 is not exactly massively young. But it's still younger. And there was definitely a generational gap between Butler and Smith and Jones and Wagner. Now what were they arguing about? Or what was the debate? What was the debate in question? The debate in question was this question here. What is the correct understanding of righteousness by faith? What's righteousness by faith mean? How we are saved by faith and how we abide in Christ. Now, Ellen White, you may have heard those statements where Ellen White said that we had preached the law until we were as dry as the hills of what? Gilboa. And she said that the church, up until this point, had focused too much on the law, the law, the law, the Ten Commandments, the law, the Ten Commandments, the law. Adventists would sometimes go into town and pitch up an open debate asking other ministers of congregations to come and debate with them on theological questions knowing that they would always win. And she said as a church we had left or forgotten where we needed to be and it was preaching a gospel devoid of Christ. Jones and Wagner Wanted, or in the righteousness by faith message that they were trying to present, they were trying to bring the church back to an understanding or centered on an understanding of Christ and the gospel. However, part of their problem, you could say, aside from their age, was some of the arguments that they used. Now let me share with you. I'm lifting you notes that I took in a class on my master's. Law in Galatians. In Galatians, there's a law. Some people say the law is ceremonial. Other people say, no, it's not ceremonial. It's moral. What does moral mean? The commandments. So is this law, the ceremonial law, or is this law the... The Ten Commandments, or the moral law. Well, Uriah Smith and the General Conference President, G.I. Butler, they said it's the ceremonial law. And Jones and Wagner, they said it's the moral law. And this was the big debate, the point of contention. And why was it a point of contention? Uriah Smith and Butler were arguing that if you say that the law in Galatians is the moral law, this will have implications for the doctrine of the Sabbath and will undermine our position of defending the Sabbath. So when they were attacking Jones and Wagner in their minds, they saw themselves as defending the church. Leading up to 1888, there had been a background where different people had preached on this subject. J.N. Andrews was the first one who preached on this subject of the law in Galatians. And in 1851, he said it's the moral law. That's why I said, I wish J.N. Andrews was alive in 1888. You know why? Number one, he baptized the general conference president. Number two, he was Uriah Smith's brother-in-law. They both married sisters. And number three, He had the same view as Jones and Wagner. I believe the outcome of that general conference session would have been different if our most respected theologian and missionary who had strong connections to the other side was there. But we will never know because unfortunately he died in 1884 in Switzerland. Oh, I got my transitions quite right. In 1854... J. H. Wagoner, which was E. J. Wagoner's dad, he came out and wrote that the law in Galatians was also the moral law, defending the same position of J.N Andrews. But what J.N Andrews did was, was very interesting, and it, it, it serves as a lesson for us, even though he said, the law in Galatians is the ceremonial law, sorry, the moral law, in 1851. After that time, he really didn't use the same arguments that the others used to defend that point. He still taught righteousness by faith, but he avoided the controversial topic of Galatians. Then in 1857, oh boy, it's all over the place. 1857, Stephen, Spe- Stephen Pierce said it was the law system. What does that mean? It was kind of a combination of the two. Then in 1881... In 1881, E.J. Wagoner wrote something else. Now, what did Ellen White say later on about this question? Notice down there at the bottom, the bottom half of the quotation, she says, I am asked concerning the law in Galatians, what law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? She says, it's both the ceremonial and the moral. It's both of them. Stop arguing. Please stop arguing. And we're going to pull out some of these lessons as as to her her things in just a moment but I just want to give you a little bit of the background. It was very, very contentious prior to 1888. E.J. Wagoner wrote in 1884 that it was the moral law. And Ellen White was in Europe at the time, and she rebuked him for writing so strongly in a public publication about this question. But then G.I. Butler, who was the GC president, wrote another publication against him. And our forefathers, so to speak, were having open debate In public magazines it's like they were using the church's official papers to write um, articles against someone else and then they would use their publication to write an argument against someone else fighting going on through the church systems leading up to 1888 some say the atmosphere was very toxic leading up to this general conference session And that Jones and Wagner had no chance by the time they got there of presenting their views. Anyway, as these two young men presented with this in the background, it didn't go down too well. Another thing that happened at General Conference Session in 1888 was this. In 1854, J. H. Wagner wrote his article saying it was the moral law. And he was really really, really strong in his language and forced in his article 30 years, 34 years before. Ellen White wrote, uh, wrote to him and said, you're wrong. Now, when she said you're wrong, what she was meaning was you are wrong to be so forceful. However, other people at the time concluded that when Ellen White said J. H. Wagner in 1854 was wrong, She therefore meant that the law in Galatians was the ceremonial law. Now, why is that a problem? Because in 1888, she supported Jones and Wagner. So people said, what kind of prophet is this? She's changed her mind. But no one could find the article she actually did write in 1854. It was kind of hearsay. She could remember saying it, but couldn't know where she wrote it. And so you had all this kind of smoke in the air about whether the prophet had changed her mind and could the prophet be trusted. Adding to the mix. But you know the good thing, I guess you'd say, of 1888 is in the grand scheme of things, the church did shift in its theology. From a more legalistic, law-based theology to one that was more Christ-centered. From 1888 to about 1900, the church went through a theological shift that brought a new emphasis upon Jesus as Savior. And the third angel's message would be preached in this light. It's interesting when you look at the books that Ellen White wrote. The book Desire of Ages was written after 1888. The Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, was written after 1888. And a lot of her Christ-centered books were written after 1888. Showing it even had an influence on her, and that she also had a kind of, not a shift, but she had a, a change in emphasis in some of her writings after this date. But one of the other issues in 1888 was this. I'll get to it in a second. Notice what Ellen White says. She said, Any pet theory, any human idea, becomes of the gravest importance and as sacred as an idol to which everyone must bow. This has verily been the case in the theory of the law in Galatians. Anything that becomes such a hobby as to usurp the place of Christ, any idea so exalted as to be placed where nothing of light or evidence can find a lodgment in the mind, takes the form of an idol to which everything is sacrificed. She's essentially saying here, we were focusing on a minor, and making it into a a major. Do we ever do that as a church today? She said this, the law in Galatians is what? Is not a vital question. And furthermore, she said, it never has been. Those who have called it one of the landmarks, you see there were certain men, it's a landmark, we've got to defend it. Those who have called it one of the landmarks simply do not know what they are talking about. It was never a landmark, and it never will become such. These minds that have been brought up in such an unbecoming manner and have manifested such fruits and have been seen since the Minneapolis meeting may well begin to question whether a good tree produces such evidently bitter fruit. She said it's not an important question, which is why we rarely ever talk about it today. And why what I'm saying is I'm talking about the law in Galatians. Some of you are just thinking, what on earth is the law in Galatians? Because we really don't talk about it that much. And it makes you wonder how this law in Galatians could have become such a divisive, contentious issue that caused such disruption in the church. So one of the issues in 1888 was the question, what is the correct understanding of what? Righteousness by faith. We haven't already covered that. I'm just telling you that was one of the issues. One of the problems that Jones and Wagner had was that one of the arguments they used was the law in Galatians. And one started to attack that and people didn't like that. The other issue is this. What is a landmark doctrine? What did Ellen White just say? She said the law in Galatians is not a what? Landmark doctrine. It never has been and never will be. But this is a question that we still, in some ways, struggle with as a church today. It still causes us issues in our local church, in our national church, or around the country or around the world. What is a landmark doctrine? What defines you as a Seventh day Adventist? We're talking about identity, right? What defines you as a Seventh day Adventist? What makes you? What's the landmark? What are the pillars? What are the hallmarks? You see, what sometimes is confusing for an Adventist, for a young Adventist, whether that's young in age or young in spiritual age, is when someone else comes to you who's well-meaning and reads to you one Bible text and then reads to you three Ellen White quotations and tells you that you have to do this or believe this. And then they might forward you a WhatsApp video or show you a YouTube video clip to reinforce their position from some unnamed ministry. There you have it. If you wanna be a bona fide Adventist, you gotta do this too. You gotta to believe this too. Huh? I just got baptized. Never heard anything about that. Now you're telling me that this is vital. We still struggle with question number two what is a landmark doctrine? I want to share with you something that, to me, has been helpful, and I hope it may help you. It may um, challenge you, but I hope it helps you as well. In our church, we have doctrines, amen? We have teachings. I'm going to share with you four categories. We have majority-minority views, and we have individual positions. Now, sharing this will create thought in your mind and it will create question. And what each one of us put into these different categories may vary. Okay? But what we put into the first category should not vary. Amen? A doctrine, what defines you, as a Seventh-day Adventist, you could also call a fundamental belief, a landmark, a pillar. They define a person as a Seventh-day Adventist. And how do we come to a doctrine? Historically, as a church, we have come to a doctrine through careful Bible study and church-wide, worldwide consensus. There's a blessing of having a world church, amen? So that our world church reflects all the cultures and nationalities of the world. And one particular region is not able to foist their views on the rest of the world. There's checks and there's balances. And it's formed and settled over a long period. For example, yesterday we talked about the Sabbath. How long did it take the Sabbath as a doctrine to be formed? Roughly. From yesterday's, those who hear yesterday. About 1848... To about 18 what 55 56 it took about seven eight nine years until we settled in the view of the sabbath we have today the sanctuary took about hard to say three four years do you know how long it took us to come up with the doctrine of tithing i was going to share this yesterday but I didn't have time tithing is tithing important you If know it is if you've sat on nominating committee you know it's important like to nominate so-and-so treasurer does he return tithe no okay let's move on we hold it as important as a litmus test for church office but do you know that for the first 15 years of our church we had no tithe 1863 we weren't tithing we didn't tithe till 1878 why what's the point god wanted us to tithe because we discovered it in the bible not because he gave a vision amen We did have a system called systematic benevolence that the church adopted in 1859, which was, it wasn't tithe, but it was a systematic form of benevolence that if you earned a certain amount, you would return a certain amount, but it wasn't tithe. We didn't tithe until 1878, 15 years after our organization. Do you know how long it took us as a church to form the doctrine of the Trinity? And I'm sharing this one specifically because there's so much going around in our church right now about the Trinity doctrine. It took us as a church 70 years. We didn't have a statement of belief on the Trinity until the eight, sorry, 1940s. Maybe late 30s, 1940s. Why do I mention that? I share that with you because this is what is happening in Adventism today. It hasn't really hit the UK yet, praise the Lord, but it will come. Because we've had all the other rubbish come here as well. There will be people that will go around and say... The pioneers didn't believe in the Trinity. And what's the answer to that question? Did the pioneers believe in the Trinity? Well, the answer to the question is, a lot of them didn't. A lot of them didn't. I could read you right now, James White quotes, J.N. Loughborough quotes, Uriah Smith quotes, all saying there's 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 no Trinity, or all saying Jesus was born, not God. Because it's true, if you do read some of the pioneer statements, they didn't agree with the Trinity. So when you say pioneer statement, which decade of the pioneers? The pioneers weren't fixed in time, amen? They, they formed their beliefs and they were moving and they were fluid. So you can read a quote from the 1850s and it'll be very different from that same pioneer, what they said in the 1890s. And as a church, we didn't settle on our belief until the 1930s 40s. Even after Ellen White wrote her book, The Desire of Ages, which I think has some quotations that are amazing on the divinity of Christ. Our doctrines were formed over and settled over often long periods of time. We have a 28 fundamentals now. But those of you who are a little bit older than, than, than some in this audience will know, it wasn't so long ago we only had 27. And it's not out the question that we'll have 29 or 30 or 31 or 32. Doctrines define you as an Adventist. State of the dead, Sabbath, sanctuary, second coming. They define you as an Adventist. What comes next? Teachings. What are teachings? Teachings, this is where it starts to get muddy. Teachings are beliefs or lifestyle issues that the church has adopted, but they may not be a test of faith or fellowship. What do I mean by that? They may represent what Adventists hold to be true. However, it may not be a test of what? it may not be a test of fellowship okay so for example for example what example shall i use because this can get sticky here's an example i'll use i'll keep t- i'll stick to myself amen I married my married I'm married where's my metal proof of marriage I don't have any you see my wife she'd hold her hands up she doesn't wear a wedding ring does our church teach that you cannot wear wedding rings yes or no no do they teach you have to wear wedding rings no, they don't. And there's Ellen White quotations that will give you the, the room for maneuvering on both sides of the argument. I, will, I know Adventists, though, that believe that so strong that you, most of the time you shouldn't, that believe it so strong in their minds if someone does wear one, it's just an abomination. Now, we come from British culture where it's just kind of been around all time. But it's interesting because the church in America, up until the 1980s, never wore wedding rings. And then in about the 80s and 85, they started to adopt it. So in America, it's a huge issue. It defines whether you're a liberal or conservative over there. Whereas for us, it's just kind of like, huh? It's kind of a non-issue. There's another example I'll share with you in a minute, but but I'll just kind of leave it at that one for the minute. separation of church and state maybe i'm stepping on toes i don't know but that's not a doctrine of our church is it it's not a doctrine it's what we hold to be ideal and the best amen however not everyone lives in a country where there is a separation of church and state and in some countries it's a lot trickier and a lot harder than if you live in the united states of america And here in England we have union of church and state, do we not? The Queen is the head of the church and she's the head of the state. I mean, it's a bit of a loose one, but we have a union of church and state here. We as Adventists aren't marching down to Parliament protesting that, are we? We just kind of leave that one alone. It's not a major. It's not a major. What comes next? majority minority views these are these can be positions or beliefs held by larger groups of Adventists that are not recognized as doctrines or teachings and they can include ideas that are not core faith ideas now depending where you live regionally or what the dominant culture or whatever may be in the church you're at sometimes it can feel that a majority-minority view is a doctrine. And this is where it gets confusing. Sometimes to all of us, but especially to young people. Because you have some well-meaning members that are pushing their view on everybody. And if you don't sign up to this, you're not a true and faithful Adventist. I'll give you one more neutral example. For example, one example could be and some of you will shoot me down for this and you and you pull up an Ellen White quote on it. But one example could be could be not joining a labor union. Now some of you will say, "Oh, I know the reference. Is that a doctrine of our church?" It's not. But we do hold that it's probably best not to join a labor union. Let me give you another example. Maybe I'll step on toes here too. Vegan lifestyle. Is veganism a doctrine of Adventism? No. Technically, no Adventist should be a vegan, amen? Why? Because the actual background of veganism is a philosophical background that's not really what we believe. You could say as an Adventist, I don't eat dairy. You know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. However, however, depending what local church you might be in, you can go to places that will make you feel that veganism and Adventism go hand in hand. It's a good thing to do, amen. But it doesn't define you as an Adventist. It doesn't define you as an Adventist. Then, what's next? Individual positions. Could be positions held by a few or perhaps a local church. Now, I I met this one guy once from the UK. Some of you may know him. I don't know. This is a live stream, so I better be careful. But it's okay. And everywhere he goes, every church, every group, wherever he goes, he always has some photocopied sheets stapled together of about 20 copies. And no matter what Sabbath school class he sits in, no matter what table he sits at at the potluck table, no matter what the Sabbath school lesson is on, he will always bring the discussion around to the point that women should cover their heads in church. Every time, without fail. And if you didn't get the point when he was talking, He'll pull out the photocopies and gladly give them to you. Now, in his mind, the latter rain is not going to fall on a church that doesn't have women with covered heads. Just is not going to happen. So if we want Jesus to come, we've got to cover all the heads of the women in church. You see, he's made it from what could have been his individual position. Because I know there's women in the church that believe they should cover their heads, and that's okay. But I don't believe it's a doctrinal position of the Adventist church. If you believe that, fine, cover your head. But it does not mean that everyone who doesn't cover their head is a backslidden apostate Adventist in need of your intercession. Now, I'm not saying this is an individual position. And I know that this will cause different opinions in each one of your minds when I say this next word. And I know that there are differing views right here in this room from previous conversations I've had with you. Christmas. Now, there's some Adventists that believe about it very strongly. Do you know some of them? On both sides of the coin. Some of them are like, no Christmas, no nothing, it's pagan, it's this, it's that, we shouldn't even talk about it, we shouldn't say it, we shouldn't sing Christmas carols, da 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 and as other ones who it doesn't bother their conscience if they sing O Holy Night in December. The problem I see on that issue, and I don't want to wade into that muddy waters because it can be muddy depending on the church, are that we sometimes push what may be our individual position or a minority view and try and make it of doctrinal weight. There is room for variance in our church, amen? And there should be some room for maneuver. That not every Adventist looks the same around the world. There are things that unite us. Let me give you the example of diet as it fits in all these. What's our doctrine on diet? What's the doctrinal belief that the Adventist church holds on diet? Yeah, temperance. Well, we've got to eat first. On the actual food. Temperance is part. Avoidance of what? What do we avoid? What do we teach we shouldn't eat? No, it's more than pork. That's, you know, more than pork. I'm hearing lots of the right answers. Let me summarize it. We believe that when it comes to animals on the land, We don't eat unclean. What defines an animal to be unclean? Cloven hoof. I mean, that defines clean. Cloven hoof and chew the cut is clean. If they don't have a cloven hoof and they don't chew the cut, dog, cat, camel, unclean. We don't eat them. Pig, cloven hoof, but doesn't chew the cut. Okay? Fish, scales, and what? Fins. We have certain principles that define a clean animal. And as a church, we say, our doctrinal belief on diet is no unclean foods. We also believe in avoidance of alcohol, tobacco, and those other things, right? That's our doctrinal belief. When you get baptized in the pool, you sign up to that. However, I would argue as a church, when you come down to a teaching, as a church, we have accepted the teaching largely that vegetarianism is a more ideal diet. Would you say that's true? It's true. That's what we as a church believe, that vegetarianism is more ideal. But do we require everyone to be a vegetarian in the Adventist church? No, we don't. You can be an Adventist and eat your chicken. Okay? Now, there's others that will say, well, da 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 But, according to the letter of the law, it's clean and unclean, alcohol, tobacco, and other harmful drugs. That's our doctrine teaching, I would argue, is vegetarianism. Maybe minority, majority view, you would then say, might be veganism. Individual positions, I don't know. You don't eat tomatoes on Friday. Maybe that's your individual position. Whatever, you know, that's your individual position. But we need to be clear as to what's the doctrine and then see from there. And the reason why as a church we've adopted that as our doctrine on health is because God God understands that, you know, God has an ideal, but he recognizes that we live in a world with challenges. He recognizes we live in a world where some people may not have the choice that we have here living in Western uh, Europe, etc. And God recognizes that thing in the world in which we live. And so you've got the basic this, and then there's room for variance. Now, all of what I said there, I pray that you can help filter through some of the things in your mind. What was the issue in 1888, back to 1888? They were making something that was a majority-minority view of doctrinal importance and arguing it with doctrinal intensity. Now, I believe if at the next general conference session, someone comes to the floor with a motion that we need to change our belief on the state of the dead. Whoa. We should defend that to the hill, amen, with strength, courage, and unflinching. But there's another issue that I want to close with. We talked a little bit about the background issue of righteousness by faith. We talked a little bit about the difference between doctrine, teaching, majority, minority, and individual positions. But if there was to be one of the biggest lessons you draw from 1888, and you don't even have to know the issues, know exactly what happened in 1888, it's this. One of the biggest issues of 1888 and the biggest problems of 1888 was the attitude that was manifested in Minneapolis. That's the biggest issue. And I share this with you because as a Manchester South Seventh day Adventist church, or whatever church you come from, The biggest issue you could argue is not so much that you know exactly what the 28 are. The bigger issue is the attitude you manifest as you teach or defend that. In 1888, here's a side point. You know how many women were at the general conference session? Anyone have a guess? How many women were at the general conference session in 1888? Wrong. Ellen White was there. There was one woman there. Now, my my guess, the outcome of the general conference session might have been different if there was more than one woman there. There's something about men getting into a fight and arguing with men let's be honest, men, you dig your heels in and you don't retract. Because there comes a point where pride and your manliness and what defines you as a man is at stake. Maybe if there was a few women in that room that just said, calm down, calm down, calm down, it would have helped. But ultimately, it would have helped if the people who were there actually... reset their attitudes. Ellen White said this, if you had not been blinded, you would have seen and understood that the spirit brought to that meeting was not the spirit of Christ. The different views in regard to the law in Galatians need not have produced any such exhibitions. I have not the slightest burden upon that subject. God has not inspired all this intense feeling over that subject. I have not a particle of burden on that subject. Now, I have no idea what you have, if you have any issues here at Manchester South, or if you do have issues, what your issues are. I can assure you the pastor did not give me a briefing phone call before he came. But I'll just throw the question out there to you. Do you ever get caught up in arguments where if Ellen White was to comment, she would say, I have not the slightest burden upon that subject? What sometimes causes the heat? I can tell you from the few church boards and business meetings that I've sat in in my few short years of ministry, we rarely debate the 28 fundamentals. We're debating the other stuff. With such heat and intensity, you would think we were defending the Sabbath before Parliament. We need to sometimes reset ourselves and Figure out what is a real issue. That's why sometimes people get switched off from church because they're just like, can't be bothered. What's the point? Ellen White said, my only trouble is the position of those ministers who were at the conference who manifested so little of the spirit of Christ and possessed more, more largely the spirit which controlled the scribes and Pharisees which planned the betrayal and acted the prominent part in the trial of Christ. She says, that's my only issue was the attitude of the men there That's her biggest issue. You know what happened after 1888? Ultimately, as a church, we realized that it didn't really matter what the law in Galatians was, but the question was, what's the purpose of the law? And today, if you ask an Adventist who who studied, what's the purpose of the law? The answer that we'll give is, the purpose of the law is to point you to Jesus. Both as a solution to your sin and the standard of righteousness. But it took us several years to get to that answer. And in the process, we had too many arguments. You know, when there's a fight in church, the best thing to do is not always to find the right answer, but rather to stop and ask God to reset the attitudes in the room or in the place. And one of the real lessons to learn from 18, And as a church, we still haven't learned this lesson. General Conference... Division, conference, union, whatever, local. We still haven't learned this lesson. What does it mean to be a Christian in conflict? We really struggle with that still. On a local church level, it's like, well, I'm with elder so-and-so and and I'm with deacon so-and-so. And and if they dare try to bring elder so-and-so to the church, I'm going to stand up and let them know. And if he's elected as head elder, I'm not taking any office. And God applauds you? I don't know. We have this camp mentality. And we really struggle. How can I be a Christian with someone I disagree with? On some of the other issues. I remember in the church, I pastored a church in Birmingham and Yardley. And we had certain members there, and I brought, bring back the Christmas issue, who felt very strongly on Christmas. Now, if I go back there now, there's certain members there that I'm very, very good friends with. Still am. And I know their view is different to my view, and they know my view is different to their view. But somehow we've been able to kind of see past that disagreement we have there and embrace the wider issues or part of life that we do agree on. Now, I'm not perfect because there's other areas where I need to have help, amen? Amen. But what does it mean to be a Christian in conflict? You know, it was John Wesley. Let me share you a story, John Wesley from the Reformation. John Wesley and George Whitfield went to Oxford University together. They both graduated around the same time, and they were both part of the club that's called the Holy Club, that eventually grew and became the Methodist Church. George Whitfield graduated and became an itinerant preacher. He never settled in a parish; travelled around England preaching. And then he went to America eight times, preaching in America. They loved him in America. They knew George Whitfield. They say every American on the eastern coast of America had heard George Whitfield preach at least once. He was the first white man who ever preached to the to the slaves. An Englishman. He died in America. Now, during the course of his life, him and John Wesley had some serious theological arguments. And, and most historians believe that John Wesley is the person who coined the phrase, firstly in private, and now it's known the world around, let's agree to disagree. He coined that phrase in a discussion with George Whitfield, when they could not come to a conclusion on this theological point, John Wesley, even though he was five foot three, became the bigger man and said, "Listen, George, let's just agree to disagree here." They agreed to disagree, and it did not affect their future relationship, to the point that when George Whitfield died he personally by letter requested that at his memorial service in london it would be john wesley that did it now to me that's a, it's a prime example of two christians two great men of god who had conflict but stayed as christians after the conflict with a mutual respect for each other after 1888 what happened you know what's very interesting? It's an, it's, it's, it's an irony of history. And it's very sad in some ways. But the two men who opposed Jones and Wagner were Uriah Smith and G.I. Butler. Let me share with you what happened to Uriah Smith after 1888. He was the principal teacher in the church, he was a theologian in the church. He wrote the book called Daniel and Revelation that we still read today, a classic masterpiece. In 1895, he repented publicly in front of the Battle Creek Dime Tabernacle, which sat 3,000 people. Publicly repented to the church for how he had opposed Jones and Wagner in 1888. Publicly repented. In the 1890s, when the church, he had been the editor of the Review and Health for 50 years. When the church voted for him to be an associate editor, he gladly accepted it, and served as the associate editor. He reports to having a conversion experience in 1895 after he had been working for the church for 40, 50 years. Why did I put the point about associate editor? What does that mean? That's the equivalent of being a head elder for 30 years, and then you get asked to be a deacon. Okay, I'll be a deacon. Uriah Smith, in many ways, even though he opposed the debate in 1888. Later on, he accepted the message in his life of 1888. I believe he'll be in heaven. G.I. Butler, what about him? In 1915, he was an old man. And at Loma Linda, what is Loma Linda now, hospital, university, there were some financial troubles. And there was a motion to close down Loma Linda. Praise the Lord, they didn't. But before they took the vote, G.I. Butler, who was now in his 80s or 90s, well, what it would have been, 1830, whatever, he stood up and he said this. He said, you all know here that I have not always been right. What was he referring to? 1888. He says, you all know here that I haven't always been right. He said, but this is one old hand that will never raise to close what God says should be operating. Loma Linda University stayed open, amen? But what happened to A.T. Jones? In 1903, even though he opposed the office of the General Conference President, when he was asked to be a General Conference President, he took it on. But he was a very bad General Conference President. Eventually, he associates with a man called Ballinger, and he goes into a very critical phase, criticizing the church, criticizing the church, criticizing the church. In 1909, he had separated himself from the church now, and in 1909, there was a a general conference session, and they were talking, and they were trying to reconcile and bring Jones back into the fold. He's one of the brightest minds our church ever produced. And I believe it was W.W. Prescott at that general conference session. He looked at Jones across the table and he said these words. He said, come home, Brother Jones. Come home, Brother Jones. Brother Jones, the man who taught righteousness by faith. Come home, Brother Jones. They say A.T. Jones stood up, held out his hand, kind of like that, And then was like, no, I can't, I can't, and sat down and shook his head. He taught the church the righteousness by faith message. But ultimately, and and, and you can blame the older people or all these people who criticized him, and all of that may play a part, but ultimately, A.T. Jones never let the message he preached change his own heart. E.J. Wagner left the church over some other issues. Both of them left the church. The two that preached it left. The two that opposed it were converted by that same message. Really what Jones left over was the issue of pride. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault of which we are more unconscious in ourselves and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Isn't that true? We think we don't have it. <laughs> the law in Galatians conflict provides many lessons for us as a church today. And it's so easy for us in our conflicts to forget about Jesus and to be human. We're never possible when we're having these debates on issues in our church. We need to try and avoid an us and them attitude. It's not always easy, but we need to try and avoid it. It's not our camp and their camp. It's not us and them. It's not the righteous against the wicked. It's not the sheep and the goats. Oftentimes, these are our brothers and sisters, or our parents, or our cousins, or our uncles, or our aunties. What does it mean to be a Christian? In conflict, there is no surer proof of a confirmed pride than the belief that one is sufficiently humble. The lesson that I hope we take away from the message today, two things. I hope as you continue in your Christian journey, you have a clearer idea as to what it is that defines you as an Adventist. That gives you that sense of brotherhood to Adventists around the world. And know that there, amongst there or below there, you may have your own personal convictions based on things that you have read, and that may be okay. You may even have individual positions that you've taken. Praise the Lord, you've got some individual positions. But know the difference between them and some of the other categories. But also, I pray that as a church... We don't fall into the same trap that the church has fell into for decade after decade after decade. And that we know what it means to disagree and still maintain a friendship. You know, sometimes when I sit around and someone tells me, maybe I shouldn't say this. You know, sometimes our church plants in Adventism. I will say it. Sometimes our church plants in Adventism aren't church plants. They're church schisms. Because elder so-and-so doesn't like elder so-and-so, and and the only way to solve the problem of having to worship in the same building is to go and start a church. You see it over and over. And the reason why some of our church plants don't work is because the reason why... They started was not evangelism but conflict. And that's why twenty years on some of them are still as dead as when they started. We need to learn how to have the Spirit of Christ in our churches, to love one another in our churches, to agree, and at times to disagree. And still to be able to respect each other in the process. I'm going to bow for a word of prayer, but I want to, as we have a word of prayer, I just want to have a prayer, a time of silence as we pray. And if there's anything that you need to lay on the altar to God, personally, an issue, a person, and it may be that after we pray, whether the person may be in this room, or maybe you'll see them on Sabbath, you may need to go up to someone and talk to them, And be humble and apologize. Or maybe you don't need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to give forgiveness. Let's kneel down as we pray. There's these cards as well I'll invite you to fill out afterwards as well. And after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll close close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that you would answer the prayers of our heart you would answer the burdens of our heart I pray Lord that you would just help us as a church help us as individuals to have a clearer sense of who we are as Adventist and to possess your spirit in our hearts with how we deal with others and with how we relate to others that may think slightly different to us. That we may have the spirit that Jesus had. And how he dealt with those around him. And how he mentored and trained his disciples. May we would just have the spirit of Jesus. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.